Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Good morning, everybody. So, yeah, so welcome to worship after what we've called Snowpocalypse. Glad you're here. Glad we're getting to do this. My name's Alex, one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of walking through uh, the word that you just heard Jess read to us. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip open to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to go to the beginning of chapter 4. So chapter 3, verse 18, down to 4, verse 1. If you're new to our church or want any information about our church, there's a Connect card in the pew there. And uh, so if you'll fill that out and drop it at the Connect box on your way out, we'll follow up with you uh, this week. And so uh, here we go. We're going to talk specifically uh, what you'll see in many of your Bibles. There's, a, there's usually a heading there that says something like rules for Christian households. And so uh, we are rounding out the book of Colossians. And so Paul's been hard at work in his letter talking to us about our, our relationship with Jesus. That now we are now, because we follow Jesus as his followers, we're now positioned in Christ. We are the children of God. And so he's told us to put off the old man, put on the new man. He's talked to us about our interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ, within the church itself. He's talked to us about evangelism and reaching our friends that don't know Jesus outside of the church. He's talked to us about how to conduct ourselves in the workplace. And now he's bringing everything under the, under the roof of the Christian house and what life is supposed to look like. So I know this can be challenging because we're going to talk about family and relationships. And um, we're going to look at what God has to say to us in his, in his word. And so uh, contrary to what some might naturally just assume, what does Paul have to say? He doesn't tell uh, husbands to be domineering jerks. He doesn't tell wives that their only job is to stay home and have babies and never return to the workforce. Uh, He doesn't tell mom and dad to like vicariously live through their kids, whether on the sports field or in their report cards, and somehow get a weird identity from how our kids turn out. He doesn't instruct us in anything like that. He also doesn't tell us to, to chase after the American dream. He doesn't do any of that. And so for everyone in here, by the way, today, that whether you're single or widowed or divorced or uh, legally separated right now from your spouse, uh, God's word to, to you today is not, you are currently incomplete. And until you find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and get married, settle down, have 2.5 kids, get an SUV, and live in the suburbs. Until you get there, until you get there, you're incomplete. That couldn't be further from God's word to any of us today. That God's word, regardless of who you are and wherever you find yourself relationally this morning, is the same to all of us. Jesus' word to each of us this morning is, come to me. Come to me, you who are single. Come to me, you who are elderly. Come to me, you who are married. Come to me, you who are divorced. Come to me, you who are children. Come to me, you who are in college. Come to me. Not come to church. Come to a conference. Come to read a book. Come to me. Everyone who's weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your souls. That's good news. So whoever you are, 
in whatever position you find yourself in life this morning. Baggage intact. Jesus loves you. So, what we find here too in Colossians 3 is we don't find Paul giving us a long list of practical instructions. <laughs> I kind of wish, like growing up in the South or even when you get out of the city of Seattle, you know, you start driving around in the countryside, you see billboards, Christian billboards, the ones that say like, the, like where I grew up in Woodstock, Georgia, there's a, there was a billboard and I remember it as a kid, like it had a picture of a big holy Bible and it said like God's instruction manual to life. But if you read it, it's not an instruction manual at all. It doesn't tell you what do you do when your husband's selfish? Like how do you actually navigate the conversation exactly? What do you do when your kid smarts off? What do you do when your wife doesn't see it your way? What do you, what do you, it doesn't give you a whole long list telling you when this moment happens, say these words, and this is the magical thing that will make life go back to the way it should be. It's not like that. Maybe you've read the Bible and found yourself kind of frustrated with that. In fact, we end up getting frustrated with our Bibles often because it doesn't give us these very specific answers to our very specific questions. Rather, what we see God's Word doing again and again is calling us to live in humility and embrace a broader way of thinking. Embracing humility, servitude, holiness, grace, love, telling the truth at all costs, leaning into the Holy Spirit and leaning on to one another to be able to see this gospel way of life actually lived out practically. And so, what we find Paul doing here is appealing to the heart of every family member, everyone living under one roof, saying, here's how I want you to be thinking and feeling and living toward one another. Uh, Like I said a moment ago, growing up in Georgia, uh, we did have poison ivy. We did not have stinging nettles. Um, I know we have those here. Uh, I had my first encounter with stinging nettles uh, just over 10 years ago in in London. Uh, So I was in school there, and in the afternoons before tea, which was fun, I guess. (laughs) There's another drink that people drink, by the way. It's it's also hot, and it's not coffee. It's called tea. And um, anyway, so I would go, before tea in the afternoons, I'd usually go for a run, and going for a run, like get out of the city, run through the countryside. I got my first encounter with stinging nettle. I had no idea what it was. Got back, I'd run along, and, and, and it brushed against my leg. Get back, and I asked some of my boys at our flat, I was like, guys, what's wrong with my leg? It feels like it's on fire, and they all tell me, oh, well, you've encountered stinging nettles. It's like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> And you'll be okay, and I'm okay. I know you're all worried right now, but so I'm okay. Uh, But that encounter helped, like, that encounter came to mind this past Monday morning about 6 a.m. when I was reading this passage, because as you read this passage, there's a lot of stinging nettles kind of scattered throughout this verse. Submit, that stings. Love, unconditionally. Harsh. Slaves, serve, master. Lots of words that tend to sting. And for good reason. In our day and age, in our culture, and how these words have been used and misused and abused, there's a few words in here that when we read a passage like Colossians 3, we all go, that stings. 
Eugene Peterson used to say something like this. I talked to one of his students about a week ago on the phone, and Eugene used to say this to him all the time. The antidote is always near the poison. That is, anytime you get stung, there's usually a fern nearby. The antidote is near the poison. The antidote to the words that sting in Scripture is the gospel itself that surrounds that which calls us to change. So, we're going to walk through this passage the best we can with the time we've got. So he begins instructing the wives. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So Paul begins his discussion with addressing the wives first, which is uh, fairly unique because Paul tends to address the head of the household. Those who are head of the household tend to get the instructions first. Paul goes to speaking to the women first. And you go, oh, okay, so traditionally men in Roman culture were listed as head of the household. But that wasn't the case in the New Testament churches always. Like, really? Yes, really. Uh, if you want to take notes on a few verses, uh, Lydia was the head of her house. Acts 16, verse 15. Chloe of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Nympha of the Lycus Valley, mentioned down in chapter 4, uh, verse 15, here in Colossians. All are listed as head of their houses. So, he begins speaking to the wives and says, Wives, I want you to submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so, as I studied this week, being a married man for now almost 15 years, and raising a daughter, this... Uh, this verse made me nervous because I know men can be monsters out there and it made me pray hard for my daughter's future husband to not be a monster but to be a man that would be submitted to Jesus and love Jesus and be looking to give his life to serve Tove one day, God willing, in the future. So I'm going to speak about this for a moment but I want to say that I speak about it with uh, a soft and sensitive heart to, to the subject. So wives, I want you to submit to your husbands. This is also, by the way, one of those verses that instantly comes up every time we sit down and do premarital counseling. Like inevitably, like, we're going to get married. Great, let's sit down and start talking. We open our Bibles and there's that verse and the wife without, or the wife-to-be, every time without doubt, goes, what does that mean real quick? Uh, and for good reason, what does that mean exactly? Here's what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying wives are not to assert their opinions, ideas, or creative skills. He is not saying wives are not to work outside of the home. He is not saying that wives are merely to, to raise babies. He is not saying that wives are in any way inferior to their husbands. He is not calling for husbands to take this verse and now use it as leverage for some sort of position of domineering over the wife. None of these things sound anything like the gospel of the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for the world. So what is he saying then when he says, wives, I want you to submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord? He's appealing to the wife's will that when a wife submits to her husband, it's something to be done willingly and voluntarily. And then Paul qualifies the kind of submitting and says, as is fitting in the Lord. Like, oh, 
Well, all right, what is that? As is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting was language that was used in first century Rome for, with philosophers and their students. That is, uh, if a student was getting out of line with how the philosophers were instructing them during the day, they would be called back into account and go, no, 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 you're following Plato, you're following Socrates, you're following one of, you're following, submit to their teaching as is fitting and according to their teaching. Paul says, wives, I want you to submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So there's a way to go about submitting to your husband's wives that is not primarily about the husband. The act of submission is first and foremost an act of worship to God as is fitting in the Lord. And then it even qualifies the kind of submission. It's, if it's fitting in the Lord, that means that whatever the husband is wanting to do in that moment and lead in that moment, it's something that corresponds to the will, nature, character of God. That is, if the husband is saying, I want to do something that blatantly offends the wife, that blatantly offends the family, that blatantly offends God, that blatantly breaks commandments, if the husband is out of step with Jesus, the gospel, the spirit, the scriptures, all these things, those are not fitting in the Lord, and no one should be expected to go and break God's will in the name of doing what this man wants to do. So Paul qualifies the kind of submission that wives are to practice in their home. Uh, I've got uh, one theologian said it this way. Uh, submission is a matter of Christian commitment. It comes with salvation. Voluntarily taking the position of submission is a matter of a wife's relationship to the Lord, not to her husband. It is fitting in the Lord. Another theologian, a guy named Douglas Moo, said it this way. Obedience naturally fits a situation in which orders are being issued and in which the party obeying has little choice in the matter. Submission, on the other hand, suggests a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. And so it's important that we see here that the kind of submission Paul calls for is that which is done to the husband is done so out of reverence for who Jesus is and what Jesus has commanded. So that's Paul's instruction. He then turns to address the men in the church who are married and says, Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So he gives two commands here. Love your wife, a positive command. Do not be harsh, a negative command. Love your wives, do not be harsh. Okay. And the, the command for the husband to, to love our wives, um, I know that might not sound too revolutionary <laughs> to us in this room today, but absolutely, what Paul was saying right here was absolutely overwhelmingly revolutionary in the first century Roman context. Why is that? Did husbands love their wives? Yes, yes. But what were husbands supposed to love more than life itself in Rome? Honor is literally everything. Honor. Pursue honor. Love your position your status, your authority, your influence, your platform, your power, how you're recognized in the social sphere trumps literally everything. What I achieve, what I accomplish, 
that is first, that is foremost, that is primary. That is what Roman men lived for. That was what they loved. Paul, now instructing these Roman men who have now converted to following Jesus, says, I want you to love your wives, not the glory of Rome and not your own honor. I want you to love your wives. That would have shook every man in the church going, really? Yes. But I thought women were viewed as kind of second-class citizens around here. Yeah, according to Rome, but we're not talking about Rome. We're talking about the kingdom of God where men and women are equal image bearers of God, both worthy, both dignified because we're made in God's image. We're not talking about how Rome does things. We're talking about how God does things. Husbands, I want you to love your wives. And I don't want you to be harsh with them. So love your wives. Not love other ladies. Not love our jobs. Or our hobbies. Or careers. Or ambitions. Or goals. Or dreams. Or even ourselves. But to love our wives. To actually, actively, passionately, intentionally pursue our wives flourishing. That doesn't mean other things aren't important. But it does mean that she and her needs come first. And in a day and age of convenience, we can tend to grow very selfish and begin to take our wives for granted. So husbands have this call to pursue not convenience but love and sacrifice and flourishing of our wives. And then he also says, and also men, don't be harsh with them. Which is an interest of all things to just insert there. I want you to love your wives and, there could have been another big and, anything. But Paul hones in on harshness. That the way the husband is instructed to speak to his wife is a tone of gentleness, tenderness, Kindness, compassion, patience, understanding. That men are not to speak to their wives like men on the football field or on a job site where you just get in each other's face and get whoever's louder wins. Rather, to pursue meekness. This might sound kind of weak to some men in this room, by the way, right now. And I want you to know that this is not weakness. This is meekness and this is power under control. To speak tenderly is to sound like Jesus. And Jesus isn't lacking for any power today. So anyone feeling challenged yet? Or is it just me that's just nervous up here? Like, gosh. (laughs) Who doesn't like to tell people to submit to each other in Seattle in 2019? I mean, wait till we get to the slave part. This is, this is a, this is fun. Um, (laughs) Right. I know this can be really tough. And to our married friends here today, if your marriage is not in a great place this morning, And you're hearing this and going, man, I love Jesus. I really do. And I want 
I, w- I want to do that. I want to obey God's word. I, I do. I do want to do that. Um, and I've read Romans until my eyeballs are about to pop out, but I'm not getting any better, and my marriage is still very hard. What do you say to me or to us right here? First, I'd say this. You're not alone. And everyone I know that's married eventually goes through some very hard things. Jana and I, as I mentioned a moment ago, we've been married almost 15 years. And believe it or not, we're not on our honeymoon anymore. Um, And we found ourselves in some really hard places along the way. Maybe you've experienced that too. And here's what I'd say. Jana and I have found and even still continue to find real healing and real power, real wisdom, going to a licensed professional Christian counselor who can weigh in and help us Help us see what both of us naturally are are blind toward and thus work toward greater connection. And so if you just heard that and went, hold on, is that pastor up there saying he goes to counseling? Yes. Yes, I do. I also go to the dentist. I go to the chiropractor. I take Tylenol when I get a headache. Um, Yes, 100%. And unashamedly, yes, I, I do. Mental, relational, Spiritual, emotional health matters. And it ought to matter big time in the body of Christ where we're expected to prize relationships above life itself because it's in our relationships that we find all of our real wealth anyway. So if you happen to be in a place where you're going, my marriage is hard, I've read my Bible, I just, then I'd encourage you, and if you want some recommendations, I'll be happy to recommend you to some people that I think would be wise, that are trained to specifically speak into some specific areas of your life. That's not saying don't read your Bible, that's not saying don't worship, that's not saying don't pray, that's saying let's take some practical steps in some areas that could lead toward greater health. And there should not be any stigma in the Christian church surrounding going to counseling. It's weird. You can go to the chiropractor and people are like, good for you. You say, I'm going to counseling. like, whoa. You must be like a really, you must be broken. I, I am. That's how I became a Christian. That's the, that's the only way into God's family is to sing off key. Like, I, I am, I, I am. I, that's the only way in is to become poor in spirit. I need help. I need someone that can speak to this. So, whew. this is what you get for missing church for a week. Like, it gets real heavy real quick. So, <laughs> all right. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
I love this here. He also addresses children in the church. That Paul expected children to be a part of worship as well. The children are as just as much of as, as a value in the local body of Christ as the 80 or 90 year old elder in the church that's known Greek for 50 years. He's going, children, you too. I want you to obey your parents, right? I want you to obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. So as children, obedience, unlike with wives, submit, that would be voluntary. Children, obedience is just not optional. Wives, the submission is different. And the point here goes beyond merely keeping the house running smoothly. When the kids do what you ask them to do, yes, that is a wonderful thing. However, it's not just for the sake of keeping the house running smoothly. When children are obedient to the Lord, look how, or uh, obedient to their parents, look how Paul qualifies it. Same with wives submitting and husbands loving and not being harsh. Children, do it this way because it's, it, it, this actually pleases God. Like, how in the world does this actually please God? If your kid asks, if you read this scripture to your child and go, you know, you know this actually brings, this makes God's heart proud. How? How does that make God's heart proud when a a, a five-year-old obeys mom on a Tuesday? Here's how. Because every time a child obeys the parent, it is a tiny, small picture of what Jesus did every moment during his incarnation in the earth when Jesus willingly came to this earth, walked his sinless life out before us. How did he do it? In obedience to his father's will, constantly. Every time you see your kid get, hey, will you take your bowl? Will you get your cereal bowl off the table and take it to the sink? Yeah. That is a small picture of Jesus constantly, every moment. This brings pride to God's heart. Isn't that amazing? That this simple thing, that we can get a glimpse into what the kingdom of God was like. I mean, this is crazy. We're talking Christology surrounding cleaning your room. How does that have anything to do with each other? And Paul says, everything. If you're looking at your children through the lens of the gospel rather than just convenience. This actually brings pleasure to the heart of God. So mom and dad, perhaps one suggestion could be when your children do obey, when they do, every every Christmas Eve, they seem to obey. Um, (laughs) But when they obey, Perhaps point that out before bedtime or as you're putting them down going, hey man, you remember when I asked you to do that thing today? Thank you. Thank you. That made me smile and it brought joy to God's heart to affirm our children in their actions, to build them up, to speak good, kind, true, gracious words over them. After all, once they move out, the world is not necessarily committed to speaking true, kind, gracious words over them. So, let's do that. All right. Then, fathers, back to dad. (laughs) The dad's in Colossians, by the way. He has to say, don't be harsh and then don't provoke. You're like, man, 
What was up with the dads? Well, we had some issues, apparently. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Here's, the word provoke here means irritation or nagging. Don't provoke your kids, dads in particular. So it's the, and it, and the, the word there, provoke, means to have this relentless, ongoing pressure being put on a child to perform, to be something. So, if we do that, the child is undoubtedly led to a place of being discouraged or embittered. So for some, there comes a pressure on a, on a little girl to be beautiful. On the outside. They put pressure on how she does her hair and her makeup. and You can end up pushing a little girl to a place of real discouragement. Maybe some of you ladies grew up in a place like that. Just be pretty on the outside. It's discouraging. It's even enraging, embittering. Or pushing little boys maybe to perform on a sports field. And if you lose three to two, given the long talk on the way home, you know, if you just would have, you know, kept your eye on the bag, you know, you wouldn't have got picked off on second base, but you, you know, and we, we would have, we could have, we could have won. I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to be helpful. I'm just trying to, Paul's going, don't, just don't. It was three to two. It was a game. Don't provoke. Don't nag. Don't embitter. But rather, encourage. Build. Let them feel like they belong, because they do. Regardless of how they turn out, they belong. So we don't have to micromanage our kids, but rather dad is instructed to be tender toward mom, not short, cutting, not harsh. Dad's with your sons. I want you to encourage them with your daughters. Build them. Yeah. Verse 22, bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So now he turns to instruct the bondservants, the slaves of the house, and tells them to obey sincerely. I've mentioned lately a lot that first century Roman culture was all built on honor shame, right? An honor shame culture. There were basically uh, six classes in which people fell. Slaves fell in the sixth rung, the lowest of the lowest of the low. Roughly one-third of the empire belonged to the slave class. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people were slaves in the first century. There were slaves now in the Christian church because this was not a religion for rich people only. Slaves were welcome at the communion table the same way the highest of the elites were welcome at the communion table. And he tells slaves, I want you to obey your earthly masters. And some might object right here and go, okay, hold on, hold on. Is the Bible condoning slavery? Did anybody feel that when you read that verse just now? Like, gee. Did the Bible just condone slavery? 
And the answer is no. Like, how? Because he's telling the slave to obey. Well, if you go back to the second book of the Bible, very early on, we have this thing called the Exodus where God liberates millions of slaves and then commemorates it with this holiday called Passover in which we celebrate the liberation of slaves. When Jesus comes on the scene and rises from the grave, we use a word called redemption. What was the word redemption? Where did that come from? From the slave market in which you would purchase someone, redeem them out of this, this, this class that they formerly belonged to. So the scripture's not pro-slavery, but then you go, but what about that part right there? One time I heard a, a historian and theologian, his name's uh, Tom Wright, said it this way, that in a few hundred years from now, and it won't be very long, in a couple hundred years, uh, people are going to ask about what were all the people doing back in 2019, driving cars and buses around? Didn't they know it was wrong? Didn't they know it was killing the environment? Didn't they know this was like, couldn't they have found something else? And we'll go, yeah. It's just the way the world is. Slavery was literally like that in Rome. Yeah, it's just the way our system is. So what Paul did and I love how Tom Wright said this. He said, he set off a time bomb that went off later. He started saying things like Onesimus with Philemon. Go read the story. It's just one little chapter, 20-something verses, where he calls Onesimus a brother and brings him all the way up to being co-equal. Eventually, Christians started seeing that and going, oh my gosh, I have to love my neighbor as myself I can't treat him or her that way anymore. And eventually the time bomb went off and slaves were liberated throughout the entire Roman world. As the gospel went forward. So that's how Tom Wright answered the question. I know it doesn't make you go, I'm still not really wild about that verse. Uh, And that's okay. But that's how Paul handled it. So, I'll say one last thing on that, sorry. If Paul were to directly take Rome to task over every single moral issue, he would have had a purely social gospel, which would inevitably minimize the person and the work of Jesus. So the pure gospel in and of itself naturally lends itself toward liberation of all people. So Paul worked within that system and the time bomb finally detonated. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. So who's he talking to? The you in verse 23? He's talking to everyone he just spoke to. Wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters, everyone mentioned are called to work heartily. Working hard on our relationships, our hearts, our attitudes, our drive, our work ethic. On all that we do, we, do, we are to do so fully present, fully engaged, fully into whatever we find ourselves called to do. Work heartily, heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 
So if you want a vision for your marriage, for raising children, for your work, or whatever you do, here it is. It is not looking inward to yourself to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not looking outward and merely observing your neighbor and trying to find an ounce of inspiration there. It's ultimately rooted in looking upward to who Jesus is, to whom we receive our reward, that he is our source for everything, knowing that in the end, we will receive the inheritance that comes from him. Like, well, what, what is that inheritance? You get the king and the kingdom. The idea is this. When you get to heaven, the goal is not gold streets and pearly gates and crystal seas and angels and all. The goal of heaven is to get to the king on the throne. And that's what you're getting. That's the aim. Amen? He's like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's what we're longing for. Not for a street of gold but for the king on the throne will receive Christ himself. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing also that you have a master in heaven. So Paul concludes this really serious section on how we're supposed to live with a strong warning saying the wrongdoer will be paid back there is no partiality with God. Masters, you treat your slaves fairly. There's no partiality. There is judgment. God will not be mocked. So as was common in the first century, slaves would often harm the master's family members. Masters would often abuse slaves. He warns everyone, saying, every one of us are going to give an account for how we live. Slaves, don't go harming anyone. Masters, you either. You have a master in heaven to whom we'll give an account. Okay. There's the scripture for the day. Anybody feel overwhelmed by that? Yeah? Okay. You want some good news now? Because all of this, what you just heard, is called law. Submit, love, be kind, you know, don't provoke, be, make sure you say the right thing, pray for your kids, and bondage your kids, you know, don't be too harsh, don't do this. Like, uh, I can't do any of that in and of myself. That's called the law, and I can't do it. You want some good news? Because Paul had already proclaimed the gospel, and lest you leave church today, if you're an unbeliever, the last thing God wants you to do is to come into church today, hear how the Christian home is supposed to look like, and go, that's some nice morals, and then check out. That's the last thing God's interested in. God is interested in you repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus. Saints, the last thing God wants from you is to come into church today, get a load of instructions, and walk out without any power, without any source, without any way to go about actually doing what we just were instructed to do. So how do you do it? You look to Jesus and you look to the gospel. So let me just remind us all one time really quickly of what the gospel actually is. The gospel is this. The God is on his throne in heaven as a trinity that he brings everything into being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak the world into being. Speak creation into being. Calls mankind forth from the ground. Fashions Adam, fashions Eve out of the earth, right? 
The serpent, the snake, Satan himself deceives Adam and Eve and the human beings are now plunged into sin. We call this the fall. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. We've broke our relationship with him. We broke our relationship with each other and we've broken even our own selves. Our sin came not as just a moral wrong, but we willfully defied God in his face and shook our fist and have brought down what scripture says, the wages of sin, which was death, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the offense of his holiness. We did these things, but that's not the end. The good news of the gospel is this, is that God saw us in our worst state and sent Jesus. And when Jesus came to the earth, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life for 30 years on the earth, everything he did, he fulfilled the law. He did not break the law of Moses. He fulfilled it. The perfect, sinless, righteous, holy, blameless Son of God walks the earth, goes to Calvary. As he suffers, he suffers not just under Rome and not just at the hands of the Jews and not just at the hands of the disciples who slept and denied and betrayed him. Jesus suffered because he came with a purpose. He came as one with the Father, accomplishing redemption together that Jesus willingly submitted himself, humbled himself, bore our sin in our place on Calvary. That when Jesus died, he died the death that we deserved. That when Jesus absorbed the wrath, that was to take away all the hell that was coming to us because we defied God. And when Jesus was buried, that was our burial. And when Jesus was triumphantly resurrected from the grave, Paul says, now you're justified. That means God took Jesus's perfect sinless life and deposited all of that righteousness into your account. That you are not lacking, that you are not wanting, that you are not poor anymore before the throne of God, but you are eternally righteous, that you are eternally saved, that you're eternally secure before the throne of God, not by your own works, but by the works of the Son of God who was resurrected from the grave. He ascends back into the heavens and sits down at the right hand of God, God, signaling to every human being that can hear the gospel, it is accomplished, it is finished, Jesus is alive, Jesus is reigning, Jesus is king, and Jesus will come one day to judge the living and the dead, and the, the damned will be sent to hell and the resurrected the ones who know him the sheep will be brought into eternal life with God that is our inheritance that's what we get so where do you get the power to love your wife or be kind to your kid or submit or all these instructions that where do we get that by looking to Jesus by looking to the one who made up for all of our mistakes by the one who deposited not just an okay account, but a perfect, righteous, eternally wealthy account into our own. That's what we get in the gospel. So lest you walk out of here going, I guess I should try to be a better dad, better husband, better coworker, better parent. Uh-uh. No. Don't walk out of here trying harder. Walk out of here looking at Jesus. Walk out of here full of the Spirit. Walk out of here confident in the Scriptures. Walk out of here confident that as the sun rose today, the Son of God is seated on his throne, and he loves you as you are, not as you should be. And that's good news. So, with that being said, we can now, yeah, woo, yeah, all right, yes, let's give God glory, yes. I'll read you one thing, one of the best writers, his name is Robert Capon. He wrote a book called Noon and Three. He's now in heaven. But listen to this. Lest any of you be discouraged today. Trust him. And when you have done that, you're living the life of grace. No matter what happens to you. 
in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how many suspicions that you bought a poke with no pig in it, no matter how much heaviness or sadness or lapses or vices, indispositions and bratty whining may cause you, you believe simply that somebody else by his death and resurrection has made it all right. And you just say thank you and shut up. The whole slop closet full of mildewed performances, which is all you have to offer, is simply your death. It's Jesus who is your life. And if he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually morally or intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst all you can be is dead and for him who is the resurrection and the life that just makes you his cup of tea that's so good anybody here today folded up spiritually intellectually morally feeling like how am I getting into heaven You're his cup of tea. You're as safe as you've ever been in the arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Would you help us be gentle with each other, be loving toward our neighbors, help us to love ourselves, help us to see ourselves as your image bearers, Help us to see our enemies as your image bearers. And would you work powerfully in us through the Holy Spirit, applying the good news of the gospel. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for my friends here today. I pray your richest blessings, your richest grace on our church. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you. We pray this in your good name. Amen.